Welcome to Take the Lead Radio with Dr. Diane Hamilton, where she interviews some of the most successful leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, speakers, and other individuals who will inspire you to take the lead in your career and personal life. And now, here is Dr. Diane Hamilton. Welcome to Take the Lead Radio. This is Dr. Diane Hamilton, and I'm so glad you joined us today because we have Heidi Spiergy and Scott Pelton here. Uh, Heidi is the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer of Cornerstone, and Scott is the Chief Performance and Co-Founder at Tignum. So we're going to have some interesting performance and strategy discussions today. Uh, I think we might even get into curiosity, perception, and a lot more. So stay tuned, and we'll be back right after this. Are you interested in finding out more about how HR professionals or leadership consultants can become certified to give the groundbreaking new Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The certification program will provide the ability to administer the assessment at reduced rates. Participants will learn how to interpret the results of the CCI, as well as how to deliver an innovation plan workshop designed to improve curiosity, engagement, innovation, and productivity. To find out more, go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Heidi Spiergy, who is the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer of Cornerstone. She came to Cornerstone with over 20 years of experience in HR technology industry. She previously funded a consulting firm, uh, Knowledge Infusion, which was acquired by Aperio. Uh, She's worked on the product side, the practitioner side, the consulting side, and now is leading the strategy and marketing divisions of Cornerstone. It's so nice to have you here, Heidi. It's great to be here, Diane. Thanks for having me. Well, I was looking forward to this. I mean, we have a mutual friend in Ira Wolf, so I think anybody who knows Ira has got to be okay. And so I was looking forward to meeting you. And, Likewise. Uh, yeah, Ira's the best. Um, he is great. I, You know, we have a lot of things that you and I both are passionate about, some of the same things. So I thought this is going to be fun to find out a little background on you because I want to find out how you got to this HR technology path. Yeah, um, so it's it, it, interesting and somewhat unexpected path. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, the daughter of a VP of lifelong VP of sales, and I always said I will never go into business. Business is boring. It lacks creativity and innovation and all the things that I'm passionate about. I, I wound up going. I, I thought I was going to go into politics and studied political science, and then I found a passion for art. So I got my master's in art history and was um, an art curator at the, at the beginning of my career, wound up working for um, the second largest collector of contemporary art in North America, Peter Norton. Some of you may know the name Peter Norton. He was the inventor and founder of um, Norton Computing um, that, in, that invented Norton Antivirus um, and many other really ground, groundbreaking technologies back in the 80s. Um, he ended up you know, selling his business to Symantec and uh, made a lot of money and started be, becoming an art co collector. So he asked me to set up a um, a database for him, and I was like, uh, "Data what? <laughs> What's a database, and why would I do that? Because that has nothing to do with my interests." Um, so, long story short, through that, I actually discovered how creative um, technology can be, and how it's really. To, and and you know, fast forward many many years later, we really we realize that technology creates the world that we know it. And so to me, it's a highly innovative and highly creative function. 
And to me, what that that sparked in that moment, actually, that that I I wound up working as a business analyst at Swiss Bank Corporation over mm-hmm. in Zurich for um, my first real technology job, and then at PeopleSoft for several years. And what I what I learned and discovered, which is what continues to motivate me to this day, is how really fascinating and exciting and for me inspirational it is to think about the intersection between people and the human experience and technology. And technology does inform our world in so many ways and we have to be really thoughtful and I, I believe we need the best brains um, on that and, and, and applied in the right way on that problem because it does in it when applied well it can improve human existence so that's what that's what that's been my through thread so i'm not a technologist i'm not an engineer but i'm passionate about how can we improve the world at large and through technology and my specific area being and i believe if we can improve the lives of people at work we can actually change the world for the good so that's really been what what kind of has kept me in this space, despite having initially no interest in business and no interest in technology, um, and very and a lot of passion for changing the world through politics or the creative, um, you know, artistic experience. Well, that's an interesting background, especially some major companies. And I would love to have had some of your jobs. It sounds really fascinating. My husband's from Cleveland. He's from Wycliffe. I don't know. Just a oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I, um, I think it's really um you you brought up a couple things i i worked with a lot of consultants and leaders and different people to, to develop curiosity in people and part of it i found what stops people from being curious is that you know they have fear they have make assumptions you know tell themselves certain things but also technology uh they can over and under utilize it and um they also have an impact from their, their environment everybody really with whom they've ever come in contact and as i looked at curiosity I of course researched mindset uh, Carol Dweck's research was very important but you talk about be, uh, fostering a beginner's mindset with your team and I want to know what you mean by that yeah so um, I took before I came to Cornerstone I took a two-year sabbatical just um, to really prioritize other things in my life other than my my work um, my work world and I really got into yoga during that period and discovered this concept of a beginner's mindset. And what a beginner's mindset is, is it, it, it basically, it's, a, it's a, originally a Zen Buddhist term, and it refers to having an attitude of openness and eagerness and lack of preconceptions when studying a subject. So it's really approaching every subject or every encounter in life as a beginner would, with a complete um, open mind, uh, lack of preconceived notions, a lack of bringing an expert's mindset to the table, which means I'm bringing all of my years of experience, all of my knowledge to bear on this problem, which in many cases can close the window of innovation and openness. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really important as people in this world and organizations think about building their culture, which is you know, how do you actually value openness and a lack of preconceived notion and a lack of expert mindset versus um, the, the the opposite? So I think it's um, it's 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 pretty exciting if you really begin to delve into it. And I know um, there's a you know 
I, I think a lot of mistakes that we make in the business world and at the world at large are based on, well, we've, you know, even if it's an underlying mindset, we've always done it this way. Right. Or that's how things work here. Or that's how things work. Or that's the best practice. And one of my pet peeves is the term best practice. Because there really is no best practice. There's really emerging practices. Organizations are, should always be learning. People should always be learning. So new practices should always be emerging. Because um, the world isn't standing still. So what was maybe best yesterday is certainly not going to be best tomorrow. So and in order to define tomorrow, because the world around us is changing, we need to think about tomorrow, whether that tomorrow is how does our organization, our team, or even a process function or operate. We need to come to that, that, that big challenge and that question with a, with a beginner's mindset, with a really um, open mind the way a beginner or a child approaches the world. I mean, you see curiosity is, you know, peaks in, in, in early childhood, and we see it start to, to plummet um, throughout life. And that is because this beginner's mindset becomes, starts to become um, closed off, and, and people start to rely too much on their existent knowledge and their past experience versus really um, coming to every question and every opportunity and situation with complete openness. And, 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 and listening and learning and listening and learning, you know, the, the old adage, um, two ears, one mouth, yeah. it, it is absolutely essential to the, the beginner's mindset. Well, I, I think that, it, you know, you bring up so many things that everybody's trying to do to un unlock innovation. And if you don't recognize, um, it's almost like you're coming to play golf and you've learned this bad golf swing and <laughs> you have to start all over again and learn all these different things it's almost easier to come into an industry and not know anything uh, it, it, because you do have that beginner's mindset but a lot of us have this baggage this way of looking at things um, and, I, and I know I encourage a lot of people when I do my talks and training to, to, um, to look outside of their cubicle to look outside of their industry you know and their 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 uh, silos in their industries even. And, but do you see a lot of examples of companies going and looking at outside industries for ideas or do they kind of pretty much go by the book of what's been invented in status quo thinking? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think that is one of the biggest mistakes that we, that the companies make in terms of looking at um, their, looking at competition and benchmarking um, their performance and um, benchmarking all attributes of their, their organization is that they tend to look too much at peers. Similarly, I think we make a mistake where we hire too often, particularly at the leadership and executive level, um, industry insiders. And I'll just speak candidly from the world of HR technology. I think um, we have so much to learn about technology in the workplace from other industries. And how do we serve, how do we serve our employees and our people at work differently and that we have so much to learn from how other industries operate just i'll just give you a couple of examples um one of the things at cornerstone that we're we're working on and, and looking at is um the way people learn in the world today not just at work but probably just as more importantly outside of work is very very different from how people learned in the past and the pro and the challenge of for corporate learning functions today is how do you actually enable employees to always be learning and how do you enable the intersection between work and learning on a continuous basis that it's not something 
separate from work, but, but it's part of work. And so therefore, how do you get the right learning in front of the right people at the right time? Well, guess what? That's a problem that's been solved already by content marketing. So if you look at what marketing has done and how anyone has used Instagram or Facebook and and the power of marketing today and identifying based on patterns and attributes that we understand about the individual person, personalizing the, in the case of marketing, ads and how do we get the right ads to the right people? Well, marketing is well ahead of corporate America in terms of how do we get the right learning and content to people. And so that's just an example of where I think looking at other industries, there's so much to be learned and gained from that. In fact, we just hired a new um, chief product officer and we deliberately made the decision to hire someone without the domain expertise of human capital management software, (laughs) but to look, and, and he actually comes from Adobe and Marketo. And I think that's, just there's so much good to be gained there. Um, one of the things that I like to um, talk about when I tr- am trying to encourage innovation in the, in the various companies I, I, I've worked for is I t- I, if you think about what happened in Florence during the Renaissance and just the explosion of innovation that we saw, it wasn't it wasn't random. It wasn't coincidental. It wasn't by accident. It was actually a very very deliberate cultivated environment that gave yield to the Renaissance. So the Medicis were a, a banking family in Florence, and they very deliberately funded creators from a whole wide variety of disciplines. Artists, sculptors, poets, scientists, astronomers, philosophers, uh, financiers, painters, just they brought architects, they brought people from all around Europe together and they and they cultivated an extraordinary environment of cognitive cognitive diversity people with very different sets of experience and backgrounds and talents and brought them together and created a conversation and created a a community which gave birth to just an absolute explosion of innovation and i think that that companies have so much to learn from that because by bringing together a bunch of like-minded people who have the same set of experiences, the same set of knowledge, the same set of interests and talents and passions, what they're going to get of is more. What they're going to get is more of the same. You're yeah. not not going to you know get that that breakthrough of of thinking. So I you know to me it, that you know is a way of cultivating the beginner's mindset because when you when you intersect a, a, a sculptor and an astronomist and you sit them down and I'd love to just picture in Florence these conversations that, it, that occurred, yeah. you, you can just almost, almost viscerally feel the new ideas that, that result from it. And I, it's, it's, it's how innovation happens. It's not from expertise. It's from, it's from um, the intersection of diverse minds, diverse backgrounds, uh, you know, combined with a lack of preconception. You bring up so many interesting points. The marketing point that you made, um, you know, I, I had created a brand publishing course for Forbes before I left at the Forbes School of Business, and it, and it was such a challenge back in that time for them to figure out how to get this message across at scale and make it really personalized. And so I have to agree that marketing has done a lot 
to to get into uh, you know the, that that mindset of how you reach your customer, how you reach your um, even your employees in, in this different way. And as we're creating these teams, um, I, I, I used to train uh, back in the day. You know, I had written my dissertation on emotional intelligence, and I got certified in all these different personality assessments. And one of them I used to give was the Myers Briggs, which people don't really give now so much. But when we put these teams together, if you had everybody who was all the same on a team, it was really dull. And, you know, whatever they would yeah. create would be just, like, boring, right? You'd give them Legos, and they'd build a boring house. And you'd, then you put a team together, everybody's diverse. You'd give them Legos, they'd build you a castle and a moat and all these cool things, right? So you, you get this diversity, but with that diversity and more creative output, you get much more conflict. And so that's what I think is really important to, to learn about curiosity, to to learn about the other person, to develop that empathy, um, to understand people from their perspective. And so in my further research into perception, I saw it was kind of a combination of IQ, EQ, CQ for cultural quotient and CQ for curiosity quotient together. But you know, I hear a lot about AQ as well, which is the adaptability quotient. Um, and I've had people on my show, a great company called AQAI out of London and different people who who do this research about adaptability. Um, what I saw that you do some stuff with adaptability and why do you think adaptability is gonna be so important? Um, so it's funny because I actually started to um, really get interested in the topic of adaptability before the um, pandemic mm-hmm. and before 2020. And I think the easiest way to describe why it's important is just to look at what has happened to businesses and to people, humans at work in 2020. The amount of personal, professional, and organizational pivot that we have all gone through in the, in, in the last eight to nine months is really astounding. And um, there was a recent survey done of CHROs and they asked the question, what, what is the number one most important skill set that you believe your organization needs to focus on, you know, hire for, cultivate, et cetera, um, in 2020 and beyond? And the answer was tolerance for ambiguity. And tolerance for ambiguity has everything to do with adaptability. People who are able to adapt um, are able to tolerate an ambiguous world. And um, 2020 is extraordinarily ambiguous. And the reality is I I expect that ambiguity to continue because, guess what, it's not just the coronavirus that is yielding a tremendous amount of ambiguity, but it's politics, it's climate change, it's the speed of which technology is driving change in every industry and every in, in every uh, segment, and so I think that being able to adapt to and, and be comfortable in the unknown and it, and, and adapt. Sometimes I get the question of what's the difference between you know I, I talk about AQ and adaptability quotient versus EQ or emotional quotient, and it, you know it, really the way that I that I think about it is that EQ. Um, or emotional mastery really helps people, and it's very important. It will never go away, but it helps people react to change, deal with change. It's, um, but it's still a reactive stance to change versus a proactive stance to change. And, and and AQ enables people or allows people to truly not just react to change and, and tolerate change, but it's it's it gives them the ability to 
drive change and become change agents and to embrace change and to encounter change with confidence and resilience and to actually see change as op- an opportunity, not as something to um, navigate through. It's a very different um, mindset about change. And so organizational adaptiveness is, um, I believe, one of the most important things that leaders need to seek and build and cultivate because organizational adaptiveness is going to be require not only the people, but all of the structures, all of the processes, programs, systems, all of the things that we have built as defining our infrastructure of our company needs to be able to be very adaptive to the environment that we, that we, that we live in and to pivot, not just to react to the environment, but to be part of that change. Because you know, I always say to our customers, you know, change, you know, change is the only constant and either change is going to happen to you or you're going to be part of the change and you're going to drive that change. And the businesses that thrive and, and, and sustain and people who thrive and thrive in their work environment are people who are going to be driving the change and not be, be victims of it. Yeah, it's such an important um skill i've talked to the people who've created these adaptability quotient scales and uh, part of what they had incorporated was curiosity in some of that and so I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this about what comes first you know curiosity comes first before um, motivation and drive and innovation and engagement and where does it play a part in adaptability but i really think you have to question things you have to have that desire to um know you know how to react and and want to react how what part do you think uh, curiosity plays in adaptability yeah i i think it is it, it, it's it's foundational um the the in order to adapt in order to adapt your business to adapt yourself to adapt your role to adapt your skill set you have to be willing to to grow to stretch to change to learn and the kind of foundation to doing those things is curiosity. It's really, really hard to make yourself grow or learn or change if you're not curious about what's on the other side. So curiosity, I do believe, is a foundational human um, mindset or capability that enables the process that people need to go through, which is grow, stretch, change, which, let's face it, can be uncomfortable. But if you're curious about what's on the other side, and you're excited by the opportunity to learn something different, to learn something new or do something different, then that process, even though there will always be some discomfort in, in, in change, it will actually be a positive experience because you're actually curious about what's on the other side. So I, I completely agree. I think it's essential. And I think one of the questions is, is what, can, what can organizations do to help their people cultivate curiosity and what can people what can organizations do to help their people adapt in a way that they feel safe and secure um and so some of the things that that i work on with my teams and i try to bring into the companies that i that i work with is this whole focus on creating a sense of trust allowing for um, a sense and notion of risk taking celebrating failure um, ensuring that teams, people, my team, any any team understands that that um, adaptability and and it requires 
being highly iterative and trying new things you've never done before. So I, I use a term um, OSM, oh shit moment. I hope this is okay to use that term <laughs> on the air. But um, it's been kind of core to how I manage my teams. And I, I actually ask people to co- proactively cultivate and identify and create OSMs mm-hmm. so that they are, uh, it's that moment where you're, you know, you've never done something before. You're not sure if it's going to work. It's a grand experiment. It's naturally going to create anywhere from a mild sense of, 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 of anxiety to a high level of fear. And you kind of jump off the cliff and you say, here we go. We're going to give it a go. And the only way you people and organizations can encourage people to take that kind of risk, that those kinds of risks is by not only tolerating failure, but also celebrating failure. So one of the rituals I have with my teams is we actually call out failures. We call out and celebrate OSM. Some work, some don't. And what do you learn? And how did that feel? And what did you take from it? I mean, obviously, there's many kinds of failure. Some are not to be celebrated, but some are absolutely to be celebrated. Um, We did a, uh, as you know, all of the live events in 2020 have been canceled. We, as a company, acquired... um, Saba Software, our number one competitor in this space, earlier in the year, and we threw a a our first global and our first virtual virtual users conference, and we had over twenty thousand people register. Wow. Prior attendance maxed out between the combined orgs at around five thousand, I'd say. So it was very big for for what we had previously experienced. And we were seeing all kinds of failures in the industry and like the technology fails or you know, people couldn't register, people couldn't get in. And we said, and then a lot of companies started canceling their users conferences. And we said, and I went to our executive team and I said, I think it's the right thing to do. And we're covering all the bases, but it could still fail. And if it fails, it doesn't mean the team has failed. It simply means that we tried something new, a tremendous experiment, and there's some risk associated with that. But you can't have a breakthrough moment without without tolerating risk. And fortunately, it worked out extremely well, and we learned so much and got such positive feedback from our customers. And in fact, that we actually think it will become a permanent fixture because it was such a um, positive event for our customers. We got such tremendous feedback. And that was a grand experiment. And I don't think, I think the culture of accepting risk, accepting failure, and then ensuring that your people trust that you have their back when we do fail is essential to creating the the environment in which people are willing to adapt. We could have just opted out and not adapted to our new world um, because of the risks associated with it. Yeah, well, I think that's a great example. I, I wrote about something very similar um, in our my latest book on perception about you know how what one person went into a sales call with another person and how they both came out with completely different uh, viewpoints of if, if it was a success or a failure and um, you know the one who saw it as a success was because of everything they've learned from everything that happened in in yeah other would might see as a failure so that's exactly how i see it too so it's a that's a great story and this has been really interesting i knew ira always had such interesting people to suggest so i was really looking forward to having you on the show i just wanted to see if you wanted to share how people could follow you and learn more about what you're working on what you're doing i know you have a um podcast and something else that you know anything else you want to share 
Sure, sure. So I do I do have a podcast. It's called HR Labs, um, avail- available on all the podcast channels. So please check that out. You can follow me on Twitter at, at hspirge, most one LinkedIn. And if you're interested in following um, Cornerstone to find out what we're up to, we have a tremendous blog called Rework, or you can follow us on Twitter at, at Cornerstone Inc. And, or at our website on cornerstonedemand.com. Um, probably more importantly, of an of interest to the full audience, is that we also have a website which I would encourage you to visit called Cornerstone Cares, and that can be reached at cares.csod.com. It's a free learning platform um, available to the, the greater public. Um, we've launched it in March in response to the pandemic. And since then, we have launched free online learning courses on stress management, COVID-19 safety, interviewing techniques, so uh, an offering for people whose um, careers or work have been impacted by the pandemic. Uh, we also launched an unconscious bias. There's free unconscious bias training out there, which we launched uh, in response to the social unrest that we saw um, sweep across the world over the summer. So that's a... Um, a site that we're going to continue to keep open and, and available to the public because we believe there's a, a, just so much value in learning that's awesome. to address some of our world's biggest problems. Oh, well, hey, that's great. I, I knew you were doing amazing things, and it was really fun to chat because we both like some of the same um, areas of interest. I think some of this behavioral um, knowledge is so important. So thank you so much for being on the show. Well, likewise, thank you, Diane, for having me. It was so much fun, and I look forward to a future chat. Yes, I do too, and we will be back right after this message. Curiosity is a critical and direct link to improving motivation and communication-based issues that challenge organizations. By improving workers' curiosity, you can enhance employee engagement, emotional intelligence, innovation, productivity, and many other byproducts that come with that intrinsic but underutilized attribute. To find out more about how to improve curiosity, please go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Scott Pelton, who is the Chief Performance uh, Officer and co-founder at Tignum. Tignum is the world leader in helping business professionals rule their impact. Uh, I am fortunate that I got to speak recently at Novartis, as did Scott, so I'm very excited to have you here. So welcome, Scott. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Oh, well, was, you know, I was looking at your background. It's pretty impressive. And I know you have a book that I'm really interested to get into. It's uh, the title is Sink, Float or Swim. And you're a highly rated speaker and high performance expert. So we're going to have plenty to talk about. Um, before we go into, you know, all of that you're doing now, I was hoping if I could get a background on you that what got you interested in performance and just what is your kind of what led up to this? Yeah, well, you know, my background is a little bit odd in the sense that I spent 25 years in the fire service and I retired uh, from the Phoenix Fire Department as a division chief. So I always had my hands and my mind into this concept of how can human beings show up at their best, even under the highest stress, and even when the cost of not being a high performer can be devastating. And um, I went to University of Maryland and my initial degree was in kinesiology. And so even then I was looking at biomechanics and human movement and how we could be better athletes. And then I kind of took a little side trip for 25 years into the fire service, but mm-hmm. you know, I got my master's while I was there and continued to work on 
especially, you know, uh, performance mindset and how important the mindset is to how we perform. And so when I retired, you know, I kind of moved that over to a different population, but the problems and the concept of, you know, what is going on in the human brain and body when we're going from meeting to meeting, when we're trying to be our best day in and day out, when then we want to walk in the door at the end of the day and have the biggest impact on those we love, that just fascinates me. And that's what Tigna was built all around. Well, I, that's really interesting. I have some friends in the fire department. I don't know. Scott Wilkins was a friend of ours. He, he worked here in the Phoenix. I think he was in Mesa Fire Department. Uh, I, and I know we've had some um, interesting stories. I, were you part of when the Prescott fire and all that went on? You know, that was after I retired. Okay. I actually remember I was out of the country traveling with clients and remember seeing that and thinking, oh, my God, how devastating. You know, awful. I mean, yeah. to have a fire that loses one firefighter, which happened to me several times during my time in the fire service, but that's already devastating to have a fire that, that you lose 19 people. Wow. Catastrophic. Yeah, it is. It's really sad. We, we hike up to the top of some butte and they have a nice little memorial thing up there in Prescott. And um, it's just, it's just a really, uh, it's a very inspiring, uh, what the fire service can do, you know, what the, I mean, people give up their lives, as you said. And so you learned a lot about resilience, obviously working in, uh, what you were in before, and I could see why that would be a focus for you. I, I was looking at some of your clients. You know, I worked for AstraZeneca for 20 years, and I saw you have a lot of pharmaceutical companies on here, uh, like AstraZeneca, GSK, Novartis. I mean, you're working with IBM, I mean, AOL, Intel. I was looking, it's a who's who. So how did you get such big clients? I mean, how did you get reach that level of success? Yeah, well, it's funny. The other funny part about that is we're a hundred percent word of mouth company, so we have no marketing, we have no sales team. Um, but you know what happened was we got an opportunity to work with Sandy Og, and he was the chief HR officer of Unilever at the time. Ah. And they were facing one of the biggest HR transformations still in history. And he had three or four people on his team that looked like they were going to not make it, which was kind of the impetus for the book Sink, Float, or Swim, which they were sinkers. Right. And yet they had this huge, huge talent and huge potential. But as human beings, they just weren't doing the things that would help them show up at their best. And so Sandy took a chance and hired us. And as it turns out, Sandy's a very influential guy. And so <laughs> when people start talking about and people start seeing, like, what did your team do that changed them so profoundly? Then they ask and then they ask. And then you know how the business world is. People, you work with someone in Novartis and then they go to GSK or right. AstraZeneca or start a biotech firm like Denali that wants to cure Alzheimer's. And before you know it, you're a little bit here and there. And so that's been the funnest journey of all is just to see where we can go and the people we've gotten to work with. Well, you have a co-author. Um, is it Yogi Ripple? How do you say that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, Yogi Ripple, did, yeah. Is he work with you as well, or did you write this book in addition to, or on the outside of that? No, so we work hand in hand. We always joke we're uh, brothers from a different mother because <laughs> he's from Germany, and I'm uh, I'm from Washington D.C. But lived in Phoenix for you know a long time now, over thirty eight years. And we actually met our paths crossed at Athletes Performance, the trains trains world class athletes, and he had this idea for Tignum. It was actually his his baby, his idea, because his father had just passed away from cancer. And in our meeting, you know, I shared with him that my father also died at 53, not from cancer, but died young. Mm -hmm. And 
I started sharing with him my passion for human performance and he was sharing his passion for helping top executives not wait till it's too late to invest in themselves. And together, his background is actually in marketing and communication. So when you take someone like my background, I'm a scientist, you know, exercise physiology, performance psychology, right. and then you connect that with the emotional side of how you communicate yeah. and share ideas. It actually was like an amazing come together and very unlikely because we only our paths only crossed for three days but it shows that maybe there's no nothing that's that's uh, not predestined i don't know yeah well it sounds like you guys um are very much interested in what i'm interested in and i, I think performance and um just the behavioral aspect at, at business is really challenging i still teach for a lot of different universities and we talk about culture and how it uh, trickles down and if, if you have a certain culture at the top you're, it's, it's very hard to change uh, when you work with these companies I imagine they, they come to you because the top has bought into the need for cultural change have you ever tried to kind of hit it in the middle and can you do that can you change the culture uh, throughout the company without the, the buy in from the top well, the cool thing that we do is we often work with a leader in their team. And so it is always better when it's supported from the top. And I do have some examples of times where the leadership didn't 100% support it and it was very frustrating and it could only go so far. But because each team has its own culture, and that's one of the things you learn in the fire service, you know, if you're on engine 21 versus engine three, the culture can be, although you're kind of in the same bounds, the unique culture of that setting is, is unique and the leadership is unique. And so when you work with a leader who really wants their team to be what we would call sustainable high impactors, so showing up at their best and really making the best impact, then you can create a culture even within that team. And that's, that's kind of a cool thing to do. Well, okay, so you talk about or write about sink, float, or swim, and you talked about sinkers. Okay, so you, you, do you, you break people into three categories, I mean, of the sinkers, the floaters, and the swimmers, uh, and how do you know which one you are? Yeah, so that, it's funny. In the book, we give some examples of what are the things that a swimmer does and a floater does and mm -hmm. a sinker does, but, but, you know, the idea is not to categorize people because that can also be a little um, demoralizing in a right. sense and the idea is that everyone can move from the left being a sinker to the right being a swimmer and I mean actually it, the term the the name came from when we were looking at all of our data during the last recession in 2008 and we realized that on one side there were these people that were really struggling many were burning out but on the other side there were these people that got better and better even under high stress got stronger and they actually had specific strategies they were using, many of the ones that we were teaching, some that we learned from them what they were doing, and we started benchmarking that against, what does the high-performing special operations guys do in the military, and what do athletes do? And you know, in many ways, the idea of human performance in business is about 30 years behind these other places. And so that's where we started to realize, and then we realized there was this huge group in the middle, which was really the highest opportunity, which was they, they were just trying to keep their head above water, make it through today, make it through this week, make it through next month. And they didn't realize that they could be better. And we started to show them that that was a product of the choices they made day in and day out. And if they just became more aware of those choices, they could move to become a, a swimmer. 
you know, it's really um, tied into some of the research that I did with Curiosity, what you talk about. And I, I know you spoke at Novartis's uh, Curiosity Month, as did I. And I, I, I'm curious what your topic was of um, how it tied into Curiosity, first of all. Yeah, so it's funny, you know, we look number one at, um, at mindset as a built by mindset skills. Right. And curiosity is one mindset skill, which means it can be grown, it right. can be practiced. Right. And so what I try to do is get people to be curious about themselves. Like, I mean, to get really simple, I'm curious about what I do before I go to bed that maximizes the quality of my sleep. Yeah. I'm uh -huh. curious about how movement can activate my brain and actually not only make me smarter, but make me more creative. Um, I'm curious at how, when I know a moment is coming, like let's say I have a critical one-on-one -on -one meeting, how when I add curiosity to that, I make myself more curious about that person, more curious about what success would look like. Suddenly my relationship changes. And since we know that all human performance in teams is built on relationships and relationships are built by moments, then my curiosity in that moment is a big impact differentiator. And so that's kind of what we did, you know, even getting people curious about food. Because, you know, so much what you hear about nutrition is about deprivation. Don't eat that. Don't eat them. Right. Don't eat that much. And you want people, no, no, no. Get curious about what foods actually wake you up, how um, the enjoyment of food, you know, the partnership with food, the relationship with food changes the way you eat. And all of a sudden, it's a totally different different dance. Yeah, you know that is really interesting because I my next book that I co-authored with uh, Dr. Zilla, um, Dr. Maya Zelhich is based on perception, and curiosity plays a big role in um, perception in in the workplace of how well that would be your perception of the food of being an enemy or something you can work with kind of thing. But if you look at perception, it's kind of a combination of EQ, IQ. Uh, CQ for cultural quotient, but also CQ for curiosity quotient. And as you ask these questions in, in the workplace, I mean, the teams are much more um, able to work together. And, and you do a lot with energy, resilience, stamina, mental agility, fulfillment, growth. And I was looking at some of the stuff that you, your clients, uh, that you maximize. Um, so do you deal with training them in the areas of perception or curiosity, or is that just a, a, a fact, a, you know, a byproduct of the other stuff you do? No. So those would be mindset skills. So kind of the four areas we really focus on is mm -hmm. mindset, nutrition, movement, and recovery and how you integrate those four things. And the more of a, the more your performance is a peak performance, you know, one where you can really make a big impact, the more it's mindset driven. Mm -hmm. But that mindset has to be supported by, you know, the food you eat, the recovery that you get, and, um, and the movement that you do. So a lot of our stuff is built around how do you build a high performance mindset. And you know that one of the big um, skills in building a high performance mindset is reframing. Mm -hmm. And reframing is, a, is an exercise of building a new perspective, right? Being able to mm -hmm. put something, whether it's a problem, whether it's a story, whether it's your self-talk, even if it's your self-image, you know, put it in the middle of the table and walk around it and give yourself a different perspective. Look at it from different angles. And that's often an exercise we'll do with people, even around their bias, you know, mm -hmm. because you can't change your perspective if you don't understand your bias. And one of the problems we see today, I'm sure you see also, is people's fatigue levels are high. And especially their emotional fatigue and fatigue forces the brain to double down on our biases because bias is an efficiency tool. And so 
if I only need to, if I don't need to think different, that will take energy. Why would I spend energy that I don't have? I'm just going to double down on my bias. And we see that everywhere in society and leadership, which is sad right now. Mm -hmm. So coming back to reframing and uh, making sure that I have the energy to challenge my bias and walk around and look at these things from different perspectives is huge. You know, it, it really is. And you, you've used the word mindset a few times. And I, I, in my research and curiosity, I, of course, use Carol Dweck's work on mindset, which was really instrumental of having, a, you know, a, a growth versus a fixed mindset. And as you're talking about this, um, what came to mind, you mentioned self-talk. Uh, the four things I found that keep people from being curious are fear, assumptions, which is really that self-talk, uh, what we are saying in our minds, right? Uh, technology and environment are the four factors. And with the self-talk, I don't think people recognize how much, uh, well, you talk about bias and we hear a lot about confirmation bias and, and how we it's just something that we're having a hard time getting around right now. Do you make any suggestions about in general because a lot of what we read is that facebook or you know social media or whatever they're in their news station or we we tend to keep listening to the same things that confirm our bias but at work that's a little different scenario so do you ask them to work on this outside of work as well or is this just a within work kind of focus yeah so all the strategies that we teach apply equally away from work at work. So that's mm -hmm. one of the very important things that we really push is mm -hmm. impact is impact, mm -hmm. right? Um, so this, this whole concept of overcoming what we already think, one of the ways that we do that is we first try to get people to realize that none of us can outperform our own self-image. Therefore, own your self-image, create it, make it the way you want it. Don't have a default self-image from from your parents, from media, from social media, from your friends, from all these other places. And so if you don't allow others to define who you are, already you're ahead of the game. Right. Um, the second piece of that is we are very, very big in what we call intention setting. How do I want to be perceived? What do I want you to know? How do I want you to feel? Well, imagine if I'm going into a situation and I want to be perceived, like you mentioned, Carol, uh, I want to be perceived with a growth mindset, a person who's open and willing to challenge my bias. Um, how do, what do I want you to know? That although I may have opinions, I'm open to learn from you and I'm curious about what you have to teach me. And how do I want you to feel? I want you to feel trusted, listened to, heard, loved, uh, whatever that is, right? And when I add those intentions, I prime my brain to step outside of what I think I already know. And that's one, that's a tech, couple techniques that we found have been really, really pragmatic, but really powerful. You know, and I think it's a really important, I, I wrote my dissertation on emotional intelligence, and so empathy is a huge part of emotional intelligence. And I think the ability to be curious and ask people uh, uh, more about themselves, not only do you get a perspective unlike your own, but you're able to build that empathy to appreciate their perception and their perspective where I don't think, you know, a lot of people want to try and find out what other people are thinking or get, they, they don't even think to go there. How do you get people to think to even go there? Yeah. So one perspective that we really try to get people to think about is your perspective on competition. Mm -hmm. If your perspective is competition is war, then already, there has to be a winner and a loser. So I have to be right. You have to be wrong. And what you find from the research, even in athletes, is that can actually be very destructive. Um, it leads to cheating. 
it leads to shortcuts. It shortens your career. It leads to high blood pressure and other cardiovascular problems. But if we can reframe that perspective to competition as partnership, so I need you as my competitor to help me be my best. You inspire me. You know, we're in this journey together. Even if I want to win and you want to win, it's okay because I appreciate you as a competitor. And you see that in like Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal in tennis. You know, you're seeing right. that more and more. And I think so. So I, we really get people to look first at with that perspective. How do you see competition and to realize that when you see competition as partnership, everything becomes more fun. You become more curious. You're a better collaborator. You build better relationships. You have he- you're healthier. Um, you know, you burn out less. You so when you see that, and you, and you see a Roger Federer who can have such a long, successful career, and you compare that to some other tennis players before who had very short careers because they had huge anger issues. You say, okay, there's something really interesting there. Yeah, no, it, it, that is interesting. I'm thinking of uh, Jimmy Connors or uh, some of the others yeah. who were getting a little angry at some of the stuff, but that they still were were successful to some extent. Is any of it just a game, of a, a show, or did you find that a lot of the athletes really did have anger issues? Well, so there's such a thing as controlled aggression, right? Mm-hmm. Learning to use aggression as an impetus to build energy mm-hmm. or focus, because we do know that stress is the greatest um, – uh, human performance enhancement tool there is mm-hmm. so it has a point but it's not sustainable yeah and that's the problem so if your entire perspective is one way then it's not just something you're using for a short moment to get a burst of energy it actually is ruling you it's changing your self-image and so that's kind of the difference you know i, I like for my athletes i like to, even for my executives sometimes sometimes i get i get angry at myself because i didn't prepare like i should have and I use that to fuel me to get better, to push myself out of my comfort zone into this, you know, like you talk about potential. I want to unleash my human potential. I can only do that if sometimes I'm, I'm disappointed. So it's another piece of it. Like I think we've been a little bit poisoned to think that the only emotions that I should feel as a human being are the good ones. I should be happy and fulfilled and loved. And we forget that, you know, sometimes sadness and despair and anxiety, like those emotions teach me a lot. Embrace those also. And when you embrace them and I don't fear them, then my perspective on them is a positive perspective, even though it's not, it doesn't feel good. And that's okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies are dealing with a lot of people who are fearing the situation right now with COVID and their job security and you mean you're here in Arizona as I am um, are, now we can't travel and you're, you're not very much at least uh, how has that impacted your job and the people <clears throat> with whom you um, you work you know and just uh, is there a new focus that you had to, to to dwell on in your training programs because of that yeah, well, of course we went like you probably all virtual, which mm-hmm. is, weird. Um, is weird, but it's cool also because, uh-huh. yeah, it, it created some opportunities that I noticed that we could actually make a bigger impact in some areas. One thing I noticed, and I don't know if you've experienced this, it takes way more energy as the presenter because you don't get the same energy back. So it's much right. harder to multiply my energy and get my energy multiplied back. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we do is because we study this area so much and we're coaching so many high Um, high performers and executives in different arenas is that you see, you know, you get to share what your observation is. And one of those observations is that people are tired. 
but it's a different type of tired because we're not traveling. So we don't have jet lag. We're not sleeping in different beds. Um, and so if you really look at people, their sleep quantity has gone up Mm -hmm. probably about 45 minutes more a night. Most people added, but then their fatigue level went up and they couldn't figure it out. We've Mm -hmm. seen one thing is that sleep quality went down. And why would that happen? Well, one reason is the fatigue that they're feeling is both cognitive fatigue. So brain fog and emotional fatigue. And when we have emotional fatigue, we tend to have more ruminating thoughts We tend to be more sympathetically dominant, so our fight or flight is engaged, and therefore we don't have the quality of sleep. So helping people realize that what you're feeling, by the way, is normal, and by the way, the the strategies that you use for physical recovery are quite different than emotional recovery, so let's get the right strategies for the right type of fatigue. Do you deal with meditation in, in that realm, or, or is it more eating, uh, exercise? Do you get into that kind of depth? Oh, very, we get into very, very, uh, uh-huh. a lot of depth in all these areas. So uh-huh. Meditation would be one, but again, uh-huh. most people think, so commonly, and this helped us understand this better, is people would say something like, you know, Scott, five years ago after working with you guys, I started exercising more, and that gave me way more energy. And now I find that, number one, I'm not as excited to exercise, and number two, I don't feel that same energy all day. Why is that? Or they would say, um, eight years ago, I started meditating and I meditate every morning for 20 minutes, but now I find that I'm frazzled still in the day and I still feel overwhelmed. And why isn't meditation working anymore? And I would tell them, we would tell them both of those are still very viable, great tools, but what it's telling you is things are changing and you need more tools mm-hmm. and you need the right tool at the right time. So even I, I'll have a lot of my clients now do a five minute meditation in the middle of the day as a cognitive reset. Um, We'll build in, you know, we'll change movement from just being high intensity to also being a recovery tool or using some novel movements where you have balance and three dimensional movements as a way to activate your brain when you've been sitting in front of a computer the whole time. And we'll build in emotional recovery things like, planning for fun and making sure that you're talking to someone and reflecting on what you did well and keeping a journal about what you learned because learning shows that the energy I'm putting into something is paying me back. And it's easy to forget that when you're overwhelmed. It definitely is. And I think those are all really important points in a time that we we really need a lot of this advice. And I think uh, you do some amazing things. It's nice to know you're here in Arizona. I don't meet a lot of people on my show from here. So, uh, I, I was really looking forward to having you on. And I think a lot of people would like to find out more about Tignum and you. And is there some kind of way they could follow you? Yeah. So if you go to, you know, www.tignum.com, T-I-G-N-U-M.com, you'll see, number one, our Tignum thoughts, which are our blogs, which are um, always a kind of experience that we had with a client thinking that if this was one person's uh, challenge, it's probably many people's challenge. So kind of similar to what you do, you want to share how we can help people. Um, you can also find up, find our book there. You can find it on Amazon. But if you go to our website, you can see how to reach out to us. And, you know, we always love the conversations. Um, we're not on any of the blogcasts. Our blogs are kind of inside our universe right now. We have a, a digital platform called Tignum X, X meaning the multiplier. And, um, and so... Everything's not always easily available, but you can always find us on our website. 
Oh, that's awesome. So it's so nice of you to do this, uh, Scott. I was really looking forward to it. And uh, very um, interesting background on everything that you do and great success with all those amazing clients. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you, Diana. And it's great meeting you. And I hope one day we can meet actually face to face since we live in the same area. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I ever leave my house again. It, it, well, and we will, <laughs> we will be back right after this message. Do you know someone who might benefit from taking the Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The CCI is the first and only assessment that determines the factors that inhibit curiosity. It's simple. If you recommend the assessment to someone else, you can receive 20% of the purchase price that they pay when they take the CCI through the link provided by you. To obtain the link and become an affiliate, please go to drdianehamilton.com forward slash affiliate. Well, I'd really like to thank both Heidi and Scott for being my guests today. We get so many great guests on the show. If you've missed any past episodes, you can find them at drdianehamilton.com. Uh, if you go to the blog, you can actually read them as well. And of course, you can find us wherever podcasts air and on all the radio stations listed on our site. But uh, I really enjoy having behavioral experts and some of the topics we get into on the show are so fascinating. So if you've missed any past episodes, check them out. And I hope you enjoyed today's guests. And I hope you join us for the next episode of Take the Lead Radio. You've been listening to Take the Lead with Dr. Diane Hamilton on C-Suite Radio.